Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for ASHP's podcast, Digging into DEI and Pharmacy Practice. These episodes explore the issues, experiences, and perspectives of underrepresented communities in ASHP's membership. My name is Aretha Hankinson, and in today's episode, we're talking to the three most recent recipients of the ASHP and the Association of Black Health System Pharmacists Joint Leadership Award. 2019 awardee, John Clark, Assistant Professor and Director of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion in the Department of Pharmacotherapeutics and Clinical Research at the Tanasia College of Pharmacy at the University of South Florida. Our 2020 awardee, Kathleen Kennedy, who is the Malcolm Ellington Professor of Health Disparities Research and Dean of the Xavier University of Louisiana College of Pharmacy. And finally, our 2021 awardee, Manushka Kazanyol, the clinical professor in the Department of Clinical Health Professions, Assistant Dean of Community Engagement, Equity and Belonging, and the Executive Director of the Academic Center for Equity and Inclusion at St. John's University in New York City. We'll be talking about the field of health equity research, the historical roots of health disparities, and ways pharmacists can help patients bridge gaps in their access to medications, resources, and health information. Thanks for joining us today. So to get started, we know that health care disparities and inequities are a challenge in our nation, and we've seen this really vividly throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, and it received additional visibility as one of the outcomes of the social justice movement that was renewed in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd in 2020. So we're gonna start out with definitions. Can you define healthcare disparities and health equity research, and then provide an example of how this work presents itself in pharmacists' daily engagement? with patients. Dr. Kennedy, why don't you get us started? Well, thank you for that question. Healthcare disparities refers to differences between groups in access to healthcare, the quality of that healthcare, and available health insurance coverage. All of these will lead to health inequities. But I would prefer to use the term health disparities, which gives a broader concept and understanding of what we're actually seeing. Health disparities, to me, refers to the higher burden of illness, disease, morbidity, and mortality in one group over the other. Those with the higher burden are usually racial and ethnic minorities, but it really may refer to any marginalized group. If our goal is to achieve health equity, which means that we're giving everyone an opportunity to uh, live a healthy life. Our research really needs to focus on all the factors that contribute to these disparities. So what, what are those root causes? For example, we know that just improving health access or access to care alone will not eliminate health disparities. 
So as pharmacists, as we engage with patients, depending on you know, where your practice is or what type of practice, our focus should not just be on making sure that they get the right medication, but making sure that they understand what they're getting and why, and, and the instructions that we want them to follow to improve their health. So first, I would say health literacy is important for us as pharmacists to understand and to understand where our patients are as we try to engage them with the appropriate steps to take for their care. This is really important to think about how we distinguish health disparities and health equity research, right? My understanding of some of this is that there needs to be a shift away from health disparities research in that health disparities research will help document the pervasiveness of health disparities. So it is, you know, identifying the problem. And that's been of the way in which research has been conducted for a very long time. But moving and shifting away from health disparities research to health equity research, which focuses on solutions, is where some of those priorities might need to be for now in the future so that we are developing and evaluating evidence-based solutions to health differences that we know are driven largely by social, economic, and environmental factors. For example, traditional health disparities research focused on individual level factors that contributed to health disparities, cellular mutation, individual health beliefs and behaviors, and later on genetic susceptibility. And what we understand now is that so much of the gaps that we see in health are largely attributed to things outside of our control or individual control, such as social and economic policy factors, that contribute to the persistent and disparate health outcomes. We currently term this as social determinants of health. And I just want to end by saying the social determinants of health are, can be understood as social conditions in which people are born, grow, live, work, and age, um, and are shaped by the distribution of money, power, resources at global, national, and local levels. It's really important for us as pharmacists to understand how our patients experience the environments and some of those experiences are simply shaped by the way that they look and how they are categorized in society. I do see health, health equity being the health, the inequities that we see from health disparities. So that's just pretty much the same thing, but they're all a direct, a directly related to the historical and current unequal distributions of just social services, economic, and also environmental resources. So basically, one of the, 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 and I'm sort of repeating what has been said, but one of the main reasons, one of the main, I'm sorry, efforts should be towards improving the high-risk categories that we see in patients to reduce the disparities and inequities. And that's often done by addressing the social the social determinants of health, health which uh, has been described by Manushka, Largely, those things that are where people, we're looking at where people live, where they learn, where they work, and how all these things affect their, their health and quality quality of life. So uh, research can be centered around around those things, and, and it has been and continues to be 
Uh, I'm working with a student now just looking at the social determinants in our clinic. We have a lot of, we have an underserved patient population clinic and we have a lot of no-shows who don't show up for clinic. So we are doing a study now, which is pretty basic and simple, but really to try to determine what social determinants may be leading to that because if they don't show up for care, then that means uh, the disparities will continue to, to exist. So I think when we look at, at how we approach these things, it's really looking at how we can get access to medications, ac- access to basic services, as well as looking at, at ways of educating patients on wellnesses um, and how we man- help them manage their diseases. Thank you. There's a lot there, a lot to unpack. And I think it's possible that it could be overwhelming to feel like there's something that any one person might be able to do to make a difference. So probably the first step to making a difference might be to understand the root causes, how something came to be. So then we understand too that there are could be as many root causes as there are facets to this issue. So what would you identify, and I'm gonna start with you, Dr. Clark, what would you think would be the most significant root causes of health disparities? Well, that's, thank you for that question. It's a very difficult question to answer. The, the root cause probably dates back pretty far at the beginning of this, this whole culture that we have around health. When we think about a time period where it starts to get, at, to, to, get to the root of it, it started probably in the 1700s, and even with the um, looking at things like the difference in death rates, difference in in different disease states that were occurring, and race have always been a factor in those in those numbers. And there is quite a lot of statistics available even now from the death rates on the slave ships that came over, by, not only by numbers but also by gender, by age. And so you can clearly see there that they, those distinctions can be seen there where there was disparities in, in deaths by age groups, by gender, in comparison to the total population. And so the disparity was, was, was really looking, going back that far. And then, and then up until the current, uh, one of the most notable periods we know of is during the Civil War, where we had uh, a tremendous amount of uh, black soldiers dying in that war at numbers twice as high as white soldiers and and also not having the medical care that they needed even in, in the military. So that led to disparities there. And so once the war ended and and we had people leaving their plantation sites who had gotten minimal care taken care of by doctors on the plantation, they no longer had that system, that 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 process to be able to provide care. So the number of diseases began to go up at that point, and and those numbers are documented as well. And it also led to a system where they got no care. In fact, they don't even call it a system because the health. And that's when Dr. Trinity mentioned describing health care versus health health care disparities versus health disparities. That's a good point because health care usually is referred to a system of care, and that wasn't even started till sometime in the 1950s and 60s. So, so the, the disparities started 
centuries ago and 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 it's con- and it's continued today it may not look exactly the same you don't see the same diseases but you're still seeing those diseases even even now there's a big disparity in those disease now so the root cause of where this came from has a lot to do with the definition that we put into it now as all the disparities being associated with with political social and economic and environmental differences among the groups part of that environmental process started with not being able to be have treatment following the abolishment of slavery and that's been hundreds of years ago but that lack of a system of care, a lack of resources that were available, continues to be an issue even today. The the Freedmen Bureau Act was one effort to try to provide food service, food education, and also the first legal attempt at healthcare, which which was not even designed was not even enough at that time to provide a, a healthcare system to treat those disparities that were seen at that time. So that that inadequate system, the poor services that were, were, were provided or the inadequate services that are provided still becomes an issue even today with, with much changes have been being made since that time period. But at this time, we still see that the system has still not been adequate enough to change the disparities that we see now. So if you had to map that out into contributing factors, you probably see several contributing factors not only the, the lack of, 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 a, of a system that is not adequate, but there's also things like a, a lack of healthcare providers being of the same color in their communities. Those numbers are, are, have been addressed in some time. In some cases, they're still not where they should be. And all of those things become part of this cause. And so when we look at it uh, as root causes, it's similar to what we would do if we were looking at a medication error. We map the whole process out. So if you mapped it out now, you would see multiple contributing factors. And, and all of those fa- some of those factors have been addressed and some have not, or they have not been addressed adequately. So the cause of these things um, is multiple, and it continued to be multiple, um, started as multiple causes and continued to be such uh, even today. Thank you so much for that, John. Just to add a little bit to that, I want to provide a definition. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and Healthy People 2020 defined health equity as the attainment of the highest level of health for all people. Achieving health equity requires what I want to emphasize here is the word valuing. Valuing everyone equally with focused and ongoing societal efforts to address avoidable inequalities, historical and contemporary injustices, and the elimination of health and healthcare disparities. So the part of that entire piece, and which ties to what was John was stating here, is the valuing of human lives and how that value to human life will look different depending on the body that you happen to occupy. And that is historical, right? Right, and that continues to persist. And how do we know this? Well, it's in decisions that are made, health policy decisions, local political decisions that will ensure that certain communities will get well-funded while other communities are subject to being underfunded, under-resourced. And that is tied to the valuing of the individuals within those communities. 
So one of the pieces of that root cause is thinking about what structural iniquity and oppression looks like in our society. And they are entangled. They're not separate ideas. These structural barriers that are based on maintaining power hierarchies, which is tied to the valuing of individuals uh, and people differently, will then be demonstrated in the outcomes because decisions are being made based on how I value specific communities, right? And so that I think is part of our conversation here is that these historical legacies inform today's policy decision-making at every level. So again, we have a lot to unpack, but I think it's been covered. Essentially, the root cause is the structural and systemic factors. And let's just say what it is. I mean, it's racism. The way that we look at individuals, the way that we've, the environment in which they live. Uh, we've talked about the social, social determinants of health and all of those things, the, the income level, the uh, education level, where you live, your zip code. You can go into an area and just by zip code, identify areas where there are higher levels of health disparities. So we have to address those. And we've, I've heard of policies, policies that are made based on individual groups. Those things will cause these health disparities. You know, I attended um, a workshop once where we were presented with a picture of a, a dead fish in a lake. You know, it's a beautiful area and you have one dead fish. And so when you walk outside, you think, oh, there was something wrong with that fish. The next day you come out and you see a, a lot of fish who are, that are dead. Then you wonder what caused it. So it's not an individual, but maybe something wrong with that groundwater that caused it. And I think that that is, you know, that needs to uh, help us to shape the way that we think about this. There's another parable that is used in public health where we talk about downstream and upstream uh, factors that impact health disparities or impact health. And when you, if you have a river that's flowing downhill and at the bottom there are all these babies who are drowning and you're pulling those babies out one at a time, trying to save them. Someone should think about going to the top and wondering why those babies are in the water in the first place, why are they drowning? And so the difference is focusing on individuals and individual behavior which you would see in that downstream uh, factor. But upstream, if you look at the social and economic factors that are causing the disparities, then you might be able to make a difference. So we spent a lot of time over the years talking about identifying these disparities, but we really now need to get to the root of the cause. And if our research needs to focus on how to change those things what policies uh, need to change, what as far as environment, education levels, economic factors, all of those are causes, root causes of these health disparities that we need to address. I just kind of, I really so appreciate that comment because part of 
the shift in the thinking, even in the research, there's got to be a shift in the thinking and the research and the lens that needs to be operated with the, the research in terms of how we think of disease presentation, how we think of collaboration within communities, right? Oftentimes the research needs to really uh, adopt what we what we call in, I guess, in, in the in the educational um, field and educational circles is an asset mind, an asset minded thinking, right? Versus a deficit minded thinking about the communities that are most impacted and are most vulnerable to to these kinds of gaps, and really shifting the lens from from that kind of collaboration within communities because we need solutions that are informed by these community members because whatever intervention we find are improving the outcomes that we are or setting out to improve the people within these communities are going to be the ones that sustain these kinds of interventions so it needs to be informed by the folks in 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 these communities the other piece that needs to change is also the methodologies, the, the statistical methodologies and, and the ways in which methodology is applied to this kind of research. And it needs to be multidisciplinary. It needs to be multi-level. It needs to incorporate all folks working in collaboration to develop these solutions. And finally, it does require a professional workforce that is competent in these kinds of methodologies, right? So we need a development and in, in order to be able to operate the lens necessary to come up with these solutions. But I would I see that as kind of a three-pronged process in that way, so that we can go from you know fact-finding to solutions-oriented. So Dr. Kennedy mentioned zip codes. And you hear a lot and a lot recently that tagging pharmacists as the most accessible healthcare professionals for most patients. And so we have, on one hand, we have that statistic. I think the statistic is 90% of Americans live within five miles of a pharmacy. But we also know that there's this growing problem of pharmacy deserts in many communities. So how do we bridge that gap? What, where is there an opportunity for pharmacists and for the profession to take steps, practical steps to reduce health disparities? And what are some kind of immediate actions, something that a pharmacist, you know, one of our listeners can do right away as a practitioner? What could they do as, a, as an individual? So some personal actions. And what are organizationals? What are you? What are what are pharmacy organizations? What should we be doing? You know, what should ASHP? What should other groups be doing to address this very large, very complex? Uh, you can almost say almost entrenched issue in healthcare. I think one of the pieces starts with with our schools, and we have already started putting competencies in our curriculum to to deal with this. And I think it has to be there because I think if we're going to have patients in certain zip codes look to their pharmacists, then we need to make sure that those pharmacists are trained. And so starting with the academia, 
with all the and, and, and I know that we're looking at it at my school now and we have we've had had competencies in there for a few years. What we're looking at now is how do we teach different things within the college to meet those competencies so that we can produce that workforce that goes out and to be able to be accessible to those people who need them in the community. Uh, since we know that pharmacists are, are very accessible and close in zip code to many of these the, the, the uh, people that are in need of these services. So that's one piece. And to, so then the, the other part of it is approaching it from all the different issues, or at least many of the different issues and concerns that comes up in health and health in the health sector in general. And one of those is, 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 is uh, improving the quality of what we do with the idea of looking at things like medication errors, substance abuse. We have a big problem in the whole country, as you know, with opioids. And then things like mental health and diabetes is quite uh, another area that that's, can be looked at. So those are some issues related to quality, but then access to care is always on the table. We uh, not only to medication, but to just coverage for, for treatment. There are still a large number of people who do not have insurance coverage. And that number took a spike this past two years with the pandemic, but all the number of people losing their job. Uh, I work in a free clinic as part of my practice department for the college. And I saw it there myself, not in large numbers, but I saw enough to remind me that the pandemic is having an effect here on coverage. Because so many we have people coming there who's never been in that clinic before who came because they one of the criteria to be in there is that you don't have insurance. So we had some come in who we know will not be there very long. Well, hope hopefully they won't be there, but but they came because they could not get access. They could did not have any uh, access to insurance coverage. And then this whole thing with, with health care costs, and it's, it still hasn't started to decline. It keeps getting more, more and more expensive. And then the other areas that we look at as concerns is just people's behavior and also coordination of care to make sure they can, we can get things. So I'm mentioning those because those are the areas where I think pharmacists can play a role in trying to reduce disparities around all of those, those concerns that we see now that can help us with trying to deal with health disparities and health inequities. So the, uh, uh, we have a mission statement in my clinic, which is ran, actually ran by students. I'm just a faculty advisor. And our mission focuses on some key areas, and that's access, adherence, continuity, or coordination of care, medication therapy, education, disease management, and then just being a, a resource provider for any of the other medical people that come there uh, that, that works with us. I'm sorry, the ones that works in the clinic with us. And so uh, from there, we're able to, to try at least, and we're able to teach students as well to how to deal with those areas so that they can um, help in this process of reducing um, inequities and also health disparities uh, as we see it now. Thank you so much, John, for, for those really tangible you know, steps that um, pharmacists can begin but a lot of the work that I do is really thinking about that personal level. And so how does one raise a critical self-awareness, right? And it's really that piece that will help inform how we begin to operate a lens, an equity lens, so that when we are making these kinds of interventions and we are 
in our communities and contributing to our communities, we really need to think about how that then ties into the larger picture. Uh, and, and I believe Kathleen already brought it really uh, vivid imagery about the fish analogy. <laughs> and right, it's just thinking about what those root causes are. So part of the work equity work is operating, raising that critical self-awareness. So it's reading. Uh, there's great literature books out there. Harriet A. Washington's Medical Apartheid is a really great book to get that historical uh, lens. The 1619 Project specifically talking about the history of, of the healthcare system and really how Medicare came about through the advocacy of Black doctors, how we have Medicare, knowing that, right, knowing that history, and then really great books like Angela Saini's book on race, it's called uh, Superior, the, the Resurgence of Race Science, like all of these books help to construct an understanding of the problem, right, and then how we <laughs> fit into that construction, right, and then creating spaces where you can ally with community members, you could work within the ASHP and advocate for the kinds of changes we wanna see in our communities, right? There's a lot of power that we hold in, in advocacy and thinking to seeing where these gaps are and advocating, working with decision makers, policy makers, to see how these changes need to be. Those changes need to be informed by the community members, the people that are directly impacted by whatever policy it is. But I see this to be things that you can do within your particular practice, but outside of that practice, in the real world, quote unquote, there's that raising that critical self-awareness and then moving from awareness to action. And that requires partnering with the various uh, folks that, that make meaning of our lives and that cultivate our life experiences. So again, a lot of key points. And my first is exactly what you just mentioned, raising awareness. And I think John mentioned this in, in the schools, in education, in the curriculum. We need, everyone needs to be aware of the problems. I know for years, you know, having been out of school a long time, we didn't think about this as an issue. You know, we learned about, you know, the disease and how to, to manage that. But what are those social and economic factors that cause the problem? So we, that was not part of our everyday uh, vocabulary. So raising awareness is really the most important thing as pharmacists that uh, we can do. And educating people about, you know, the cultural competency, or some people say cultural sensitivity or cultural humility, to, to, to meet people where they are. Uh, I've mentioned health literacy also as pharmacists, you know, understanding where patients are and what they can understand. But one of the key points that has already been mentioned is community engagement. We have a lot of community advisory boards that I work with, and you have to engage, you have to educate the community and you have to engage the community if you want these actions to be carried out. And the community can help also advocate for the changes that need to be made. 
when you ask about organizations, I think organizationally, we need to be working together. I think that too many organizations are doing, you know, great things. But if we work together, we can advocate for change uh, collectively. And I think that that will really be more important policies that need to change that disproportionately affect one group over the other. So again, raising awareness, engaging the community, working with the community, addressing those social determinants of health that are causing these problems, and then, you know, advocating for change. It's, it's, it's very important that we have a way to raise awareness. And, and I think of it as part of my role at the college now, we, we work on two approaches. One is awareness, and the other, other one is based on what Manushka says, once you Everybody got this awareness. We need to be. We need to develop on a plan of action. So, so we. I've been trying to take two approaches. One is to definitely uh, raise awareness, and from that, I, I also get questions and feedback from faculty, from listeners in, and they always ask them, "What do we do? What do we do?" So that tells me at that point we need to also be combining the awareness with something that would help them to take action, either a skill-based type of method, tools that may be used, something of that nature. So we're looking at it two ways, two pieces, and I'm sure you are too, but but so part of it is definitely bring awareness, but, but I noticed that something always come from that with what do we do? And so there's, there needs to be a piece in there somewhere where you're giving out information on what to do, what skills need to be built, what tools we need to have available so that they can take that action that we need to, to do that. And I use the acronym that we we coined with ABHP years ago that still comes, every time I'm trying to explain it, it still comes out of my mind. We uh, That was always a question of, of the mission of people working on these issues. And we coined a, a phrase called CLEAR, the word CLEAR. Because when they say, well, what do, you, what do we do? What are we doing? And so the, the response was always, the message is clear, which means that for this to occur, for us to be able to make these changes that we see and present them, the C stands for collaboration. So you almost have to have collaboration that's going on. If you don't have collaboration, then you can't do it alone. You're not going to be making any of these changes by yourself, by any one ethnic group or any one person. So the L we put in there is that someone has to be take leads on these things to make that happen. So it creates a, a, a situation and a question of who takes the lead or should we all be taking the lead? If, if you don't want to designate who it is, then it needs to be taken in a broad sense that there must be leadership to make this work. And then the, the E was education. So that education comes in from all kinds of methods about which you can do it, one-on-one group, individuals, universities, professional associations. So that becomes a big part of the, the, the acronym. And then the A is the advocacy. So someone has to always be advocating to make these things work and keep these things going. Because if we don't, it the whole clear acronym doesn't fit. So then the last thing that was there was, was the R, which is for research. So in order to be able to make decisions on good evidence-based information, 
you have to have a process by which you're continuing to to research these areas, gather data, and adjust from there and make make and make changes. So that is a talking point that we created that I think still applies now where we're trying to let people know that what you do here is clear, at least clear to those who are trying to, to, to say it, and eventually everyone else can 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 sort of build on that. So um, I think, again, awareness is there. Uh, I think also ability to take action has to be, be there as well. And that way, uh, that's done through uh, the the action acronym that we use called CLEAR. You got to collaborate, take a good lead on it, educate people, advocate, and then do your research to, to build the database that you need to continue to make decisions. So as we noted at the top of the episode, all three of you are recipients of the ASHP-ABHP Joint Leadership Award, which recognizes individuals who have demonstrated exceptional leadership efforts to reduce racial and ethnic disparities in healthcare. Can you talk a little bit about your path, what led you to this work, and what you might consider the highlight of your career thus far? Dr. Casignol, why don't you start? I would say... Uh, what led me to this work has been kind of my own experience within the uh, the health system as one of the folks that was being trained and noticing and observing gaps. And then, you know, later on in my career, when I stepped into my equity roles within the university, I began to really delve into the research on uh, these health health equity gaps or health health gaps, health disparities, et cetera, and understanding how we need to have a deep understanding of structural oppression in order to uh, to move this work forward. And so the highlights of my career have have been being very intentional about not only doing health equity work, but also how I do the work. So in operating and adapting a a very particular lens that interrupts assumptions about human beings based simply on the way that they look, where they may come from. And the other piece about it is really seeing human beings in the entirety of their lives at the intersections of their identities to really understand how it is uh, gaps might 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 happen in an individual. So recognizing that, for instance, as an example, yes, as a black person, uh, the, I might experience the world in a very particular way. But when we look at other identities that might inform my experience, my gender, my ethnicity, my documented status, all of these things work together to in to really impact the way I might be experiencing of the healthcare system and some of the outcomes that folks might might be having in these spaces. So it's really about being intentional about the kind of work I'm doing, the kind of lens we need to operate when doing the work so that we minimize, we don't perpetuate some of the same assumptions that which will result in the same harms that we've had done, that we've had historically. I guess for me, there are a number of number of factors. At one point in my career, I started working for a pharmaceutical company, and some of the drugs that that I was responsible for were those for people with diabetes or uh, cardiovascular diseases. 
And it made me think more about those patients who are impacted with the, those diseases. So I left industry and came back to Xavier. And at that time, there was a focus on metabolic disorders and cardiovascular disease in the research and that was going on here. So I had an opportunity again to understand the impact that this was having in our communities. So as time went on, I, you know, one of the things that I found when I came to New Orleans was that clinical pharmacy and the role that the pharmacist can play in management of patients was not really recognized. And this is over 30 years ago. So clinical pharmacy wasn't something that we saw a lot of here. And I recognized that I could make an impact with the collaboration that John so eloquently mentioned, working with uh, physicians and other healthcare providers. So I uh, began to, you know, educate myself more to uh, raise my own awareness about the conditions and uh, what was causing these conditions. And so I actually started sponsoring a conference to bring together mid-level providers who could then talk about their roles in addressing health disparities. And as the, the host of the conference, my challenge to those attending was to go back to their communities with what they learned and to actually take action, to come up with solutions and then bring those back to our next conference and present those so that we could learn from each other. And so this is our 15th year of hosting this annual health disparities conference where we have usually about 300 or more attendees and that's from all uh, health professions. So I think that it's very important for us to, to collaborate, to have interprofessional collaboration that we're demonstrating that we're sharing our knowledge and making an impact in communities across the country because what is learned in those uh, sessions is then shared uh, with communities. So that, that's how I got involved. And I uh, hope that we continue to make that impact working to address the social determinants of health and to also advocate for change for the communities to improve health outcomes. Thank you. Dr. Clark. Well, for me, it's uh, multiple things too. It's because, um, and in and, and one one respect, I find it to be of uh, my perspective come from a very personal feeling about what I do now and the way I look at things related to diversity, equity, inclusion, health disparities, health equity, all those things. I, I grew up, I grew up as a child in in the uh, Jim Crow South in the era when it was that were. Um, mandated legal restrictions on what black people could do and not i did not think about it at that time that it how it would impact me later but when i find myself today dealing with certain topics i i feel sometimes that i draw upon what i'm what i'm remembering that happened what life was like during that time period one uh, we talk about access to care i remember 
when I was a child, uh, working in, my mother would go to work and give us assignments when we stayed at home. One of the things that uh, she loved putting flowers in, our, in the front yard. So one of my jobs was to clean up the flower garden every year to make sure she can plant new flowers. I little did I know I was allergic to ants. I had no idea until one day I stepped in an ant bed cleaning up the flowers. And she, I called her from work. She rushed home. And by that time, my face was blown up. My eyes were closing. And we didn't know what was going on. But I was really having an allergic reaction. So run to the doctor's office and we couldn't go into the front door of the, of the doctor's office. We had to go around to the side office to get in there. And and it was almost, I, 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 when I think about the experience now, I felt like I was being treated like a like an animal, so to speak, because everybody ran away from, from the office when they saw my ugly face from being bitten by, by ants. And I saw then that there was this sort of what Manuska described in this devaluing of what was happening to me at that time. So I little did I know that would play a part in my, my, my feelings and desires, my perspective, most of all, on how I look at this topic. And it, and it makes me feel a lot more motivated, a lot more stimulated to advocate for people because it feels like I've had, a, had an experience that that, I, that helps me relate to some of the things that I see when people can't get access to care and why they possibly get treated the way that they do. And it was based on that experience. So then what that has led me to do as I finally got into a position to do things about it, working as a pharmacist, I found myself going from working in an inpatient setting with, with, with medical teams to recognizing that my biggest impact is when I can deal with people one-on-one, which had to be in the ambulatory uh, sector. So I requested to be moved into that area where I could work with with clinic patients that were from the underserved community. And what made a difference to me was the the difference they, I made to them, you know, where I began to feel like I really meant something, like I had a real purpose that, and that came from those patients letting you know how much they needed you and how much they valued you trying to help them out. And I realized that also came from my upbringing as well, because my mother was like that. She was a woman who always uh, ran out the door every day to go help somebody else. And I can remember as a child saying, Mom, why do you have to keep running down the street to help somebody? And now I find myself in a, in a different setting, a different situation, but with the same desire to help people who need things. And that's where the ones who give me that that good feeling in return of me providing that are those poor people who really, really can't get what they need all the time. And you are there trying at least to figure out a way to help them have what they want. So that have helped me to advocate for programs. One of the one of the the things that I I I feel very good about is the relationship I've had with ASHP from working with ABHP. We got together and decided to do a national minority health conference. We did that conference several years in a row, and it grew near the near the end. And that made that played a that was that's a highlight for me because I had not uh, seen too many groups work together to do something like that. That built that pro, built that conference to a point where it started to bring in people that wanted to be a part of it, and that effort in trying to put that together sort of comes from not recognizing that we had enough attention being directed to it, even though some groups were 
you could go to conferences and find some presentations being given on minority health issues, but the numbers were just not enough. In my mind, we just felt that there needs to be more attention drawn here, similar to what we talked about with awareness. So we began to develop larger programs to center it around making people more aware of the minority health issues. And that seemed to have, uh, that have been a, a major highlight. So the, the other part of it, of my career has, has led me to being in, as a director of diversity, equity, inclusion, which was not something I, I, I worked to, to achieve. It just sort of evolved into that being offered as part of people, other people seeing my efforts in these things. And that has been a, a path that I'm taking now to try to address making changes around diversity, equity, inclusion based largely on what we all talked about here today starting with awareness, starting with trying to build skills, looking at working with our, our universities and at our university in particular, and trying to make sure that we put out people into the workforce that has that training. And those things have, have, have been a lot to me. And and that's that's kind of what got the, the early start, like I say, probably started from personal experiences that gave me that desire to be where I'm at. So Professionally, I think now I'm doing just like Dr. Kennedy. I'm having to read. I got stacks of books that I keep in, in my house, in my office, where I'm constantly trying to read and make and update myself on things to make me um, as good at uh, knowledgeable at these things that, that I can, since I have to sort of also help other people, including my faculty, in understanding these subjects as well. This has been such a rich conversation. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the three of you giving us such a thorough and practical understanding of this issue. Thank you, Dr. Clark, Dr. Kennedy, and Dr. Casignol for joining us today. For our listeners, be sure to visit the ASHP Inclusion Center. It's ashp.org DEI. This resource center showcases ASHP's longstanding commitment to nurturing the principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the pharmacy community. You'll find podcast episodes, member spotlights, clinical articles that will help you begin this work that we've, we've talked about today. Join us at ASHP Official and digging into DEI and pharmacy practice for future episodes of this podcast where we will trace practice journeys, examine the impact of allyship and intersectionality, and stress the critical need for cultural competency among the pharmacy workforce. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.